My name is Linda Rogers, and this is Investing Forward. This is Linda Rogers coming to you from Atsugi, Japan. I'm the owner of Planning Within Reach. While I'm based in San Diego, I'm a military spouse, and my husband was recently stationed in Atsugi during the COVID-19 pandemic. I have not been able to explore this beautiful country yet, but we're all safe and healthy, and I hope you are too. This podcast is designed to educate investors on how to invest for environmental and social return in addition to a financial return. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions have lost their jobs. Companies are struggling to adapt and survive, and we don't know when or how this is going to end. That being said, now is not the time to put our head in the sand. Only once we fully understand a risk can we capitalize on opportunities. Joining me today is Joe Pendergast from MSCI. We are chatting about ESG factors. ESG was in the news recently because many ESG indexes outperformed traditional indexes during the market correction. We can never put too much weight into short-term performance, and ESG is meant to be a long-term strategy, but still, this is a topic worth exploring and getting us started with this season. Be sure to stay tuned after the interview where I chat with my friend and fellow advisor, Jason Owens from Bright Road Wealth Management in Anchorage, Alaska, to see how he is integrating ESG factors into his portfolios. So let's get started with Joe Pendergast from MSCI. Are you getting settled back home? Yeah. When I first spoke with Joe, he was temporarily displaced as he was out of town when COVID-19 started to explode in New York City, the city where he lives and works. He was able to hunker down in New Jersey with his parents and fiance and has since made his way back home to the city. Of course, things are still anything but normal there. Thank you again for joining me. Tell me about MSCI. Yeah. So uh, thank you again for having me. Um, So just to start about MSCI a little bit. So we're a firm um, that's really designed to serve investors, right? We serve investors by providing decision support tools. So, you know, what do those kind of things look like? Um, you know, most investors are going to be familiar with us from our, our global indexes, um, many of which underlie ETFs and passive and actively managed funds. Uh, we also supply investors with analytics, data, and research that allows them to, to better build for portfolios for their end clients. So think of us as more or less a supplier to the people who build portfolios for clients. Great. How'd you end up working there? Yeah. So I studied in school. I studied accounting and finance. I, um, that was uh, at least over eight, nine years ago at this point. Um, I always had an interest in understanding how businesses operate and work. And um, right after school, I found Vanguard. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I found Vanguard. Was there for seven years, spent time in product roles, time in some business development roles and relationship management type roles. Um, and then my fiance and I decided to move, move to New York City. So I followed her up here, found MSCI shortly thereafter, and it was a very smooth transition. Nice. Well, can you start off our conversation by sharing what ESG factors are? So at the highest level, you know, we kind of define ESG as really just the consideration of environmental, social, and governance factors alongside financial factors when you're making investment decisions. 
um, and within that process. So then you take those factors, um, and, you know, and it really kind of depends upon what your end investor objective would be. Um, we start and we identify three of them. So integration, uh, values-based investing, and then impact investing. Um, we think first about integration, what that is, is just taking into account ESG risk, risk and opportunities with the intention of enhancing your long-term risk-adjusted returns. You're looking to outperform the market by integrating ESG factors. Values-based investing, which is a lot of where ESG has kind of come from in the past, is the idea of investing in alignment with you or your organization's goals. Um, so saying you wish to or wish to not invest within a specific industry or business activity. And then in, the final one would be impact. So it's just investing with the aim of supporting positive social or environmental beliefs. Um, that one's, uh, I think, a little bit harder for some investors to grasp, but that's probably the one when you think about and speak with investors, probably the one that they would you know, kind of most wish to aspire to, right? Um, we see ESG across those three different objectives growing significantly. Um, it's been around for quite some time. It goes back to like the 1960s. Um, anyway, and really kind of started with that values-based aspect of excluding certain sectors or activities. And now it's you know as robust as really those other two. So like ethical considerations and alignment with values um, remains a, you know, it remains a common motivation of many investors. But the field is rapidly growing and expanding beyond beyond that. So these ESG factors can be everything from how prepared a company is for climate change, how well they handle data security, their executive pay structure. Do you look at the same factors for every company or do you have a list of factors that are more important to a company depending on their industry? This is, again, a key area we, we want to highlight when we talk about our, our ESG rating uh, process. And it's re really about 37 key issues across the ESG pillars that we look at when we're analyzing and rating firms. So it starts with governance. Governance, if you think about it, is universally applicable, meaning every firm um, is more or less the same in the way they think about or more or less the same in that they have a board, they have um, structure around executive compensation, they implement and, and practice certain accounting practices. And, and with that, we rate every firm across that, across those key issues. Where you get some differences in where um, our system is different is that in the environmental and social pillars, not all of those key issues are relevant for each firm and industry. And what MSCI does is looks to evaluate which of those factors for each one of those industries is most relevant. So I said earlier, there's about 37 key issues. On average, it's about four to eight key issues within environmental and social pillars that are relevant for a specific industry. And the, the example, we have a number of examples that we like to give, but one to just kind of make it tangible is think of a firm like Coca-Cola in the soft drink sub-industry, right? They are more exposed to an, an issue in the environment such as water stress, whereas they are less exposed to an issue such as like toxic waste, for example. Um, so within our model, we overweight something like water stress. Um, as well as uh, another issue for them would be packaging um, and plastics and packaging that they, 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 um, they use in the production of, of their, their products. Um, so those are issues that we would overweight versus something like I said for toxic emissions or um, you, or even like on the, uh, the social pillar, something like a, an opportunity of like access to finance. It's not relevant to a firm like a Coca-Cola, right? But that might be relevant to a different industry. Yes, that makes sense. 
Do you also engage with companies, meaning are you in communication with them during the ratings process? Yeah, so this is another kind of, I think, differentiating factor for MSCI's ratings process. And this is like a really interesting balance, I think, across the industry. So at a high level, we do not consult with companies when we rate them. Um, we, when we conclude our analysis, we then go and provide this information to the company before we go and publish it up to our clients and investors. Um, really, the intent of this is to give the company a chance to almost respond to some of our analysis with any perhaps missing data or, and it has to be publicly available data, but any missing information that we, we didn't catch within our analysis and just give a more or less a fair shot to, you know, to, to see and view the rating before we provide that to the public. I think more than like just trying to, you know, think about their rating or improve their rating or work with us to, to try to really kind of, you know, gain their rating in some ways, you know, we, we think the biggest change within the industry has been how much information these companies are now willing to provide outside of just mandatory disclosures, right? I think, um, I think once I've seen, and I, I can't say this is our information, but I've seen it, I think over 10 years ago, something like 10% of the firms of the S&P 500 willingly provided more ESG information than what was mandatory or you know, required to be disclosed. I think at this point, it's, it's upwards of 80% of firms um, in the S&P 500. Yes, I've heard something similar, and there's no doubt that companies are facing increasing pressure to disclose more and more of the CSG data. So one of the headlines during the COVID-19 crisis was that many ESG indices outperformed broader traditional indices. Did you see the same thing? Yeah, so we, we did notice a similar dynamic. Um, I think it's interesting in that the COVID-19 outbreak, while it's you know obviously like very short-term and limited in scope, we're still going through it right now. Um, we're only looking at a few quarters or really one quarter of information, four months of information at this point, but it was the first really, um, you know, from an ESG perspective, it's first real world test since 2008 um, of the resilience of companies with high ESG ratings. So we looked at performance and we just had a blog come out. I think it was last week or this week. Um, we looked at a perform. We looked at the performance of a variety of MSCI ESG indexes through March 31st, which was, um, think about it like the somewhat of the depths of the the drawdown in the markets in the global markets, and we looked at a variety of these indexes and saw um, across different methodologies and across the global investable market, ESG proved really resilient. Um, it outperformed parent indexes uh, at least year to date. Um, you know, it's not going to be the case in all markets moving forward, but it's you know it was a very powerful powerful reminder of some of the value. Um, and styling factor tilt of ESG or what it does for a portfolio. The um, you know the one uh, other note within that is that like a common criticism of ESG tends to be how ESG strategies will allocate across sectors, like notably uh, within the energy sector. Um, and given that energy had such challenging performance and still has had challenging performance um, year to date, it's worth noting that a lot of these ESG indexes that we use are sector neutral, meaning they're not systematically just underweighting energy or excluding energy stocks from the benchmark or from the uh, or from the universe um, you know they're incorporating energy allocations in alignment to the market meaning that on any underperformance or um, or overperformance as a result of excluding energy is just not the case that we're seeing. Great and the dollar amount going into ESG strategies has grown dramatically. Any thoughts on why that's the case? I think it's four things. Um, so it's 
one, investors have kind of grown less tolerant of these types of risks um, as opposed to where they were in the past. If you look back to, and this is going back a ways, but like Exxon Valdez um, oil spill off, off the, uh, the coast of Alaska, um, that's over you know, 20 years ago at this point. Back then, there was barely a dent in Exxon's stock price as a result of that incident. Um, you can point to a number of different cases over the last few years where firms have had major corporate inc incidents and investors have re reacted by, um, you know, obviously denting the share price quite a bit. And I think, you know, a couple come to mind would be um, Equifax was a big one, uh, Volkswagen another, um, just a, a series of these over the time that investors have, you know, basically become less tolerant of firms exposing themselves to this type of risk. And then with that, ESG has kind of developed a longer track record. We look at, um, you know, some of our indexes have been around for about 28 years, um, ESG indexes that is, and have shown outperformance versus the market. So ESG has just been around longer, so it's given it investors more data and information to show its performance through time. And then a couple others. So large investors are allocating to ESG. We see this with large public pension plans and uh, a number of uh, global asset owners who've allocated to MSCI ESG indexes, both on the equity and fixed income side. Um, and the growth there has been substantial. And then the one I guess I would really like to hone in on is that our ratings, and not just our ratings, but ratings of ESG, ESG ratings have substantially improved over time. Um, I think the one stat I would give there is that our coverage, and this is again looking at MCI, coverage of like the high yield index, which would be um, global fixed income, has gone from something like in the range of like, I want to say 30%, maybe 10 years ago, to upwards of 75-80% at this point. So we're covering more and more firms with this rating system, which tells you how robust the, the ratings approach has really become. Something that is often tracked is fund flows. It is essentially a way to follow where the money is going. What really surprised me was that in March, when things were really volatile in the stock market, the flows into traditional stocks dropped sharply, which you would expect. Investors get scared when things are volatile and stop saving or may exit the market. But that was not the case with the money going into ESG investments. The flows into ESG stock ETFs, for example, continued to rise steadily during the same time period. I don't think anyone can know definitively as to why that is the case, but I am curious if you have any thoughts on what drove that. Yeah, I think, um, and this may not be from MSI's perspective, but a little bit from my perspective in terms of, uh, you know, what we've kind of seen in both talking to clients and just kind of um, through a number of just studies that are available right now, um, kind of year-to-date flows. So I, a couple of things, especially with ESG, last year was remarkable um, in terms of the growth of ESG. So, you know, MSCI saw its assets in um, ETFs, uh, ETFs using an ESG type index, basically nearly triple um, over the course of 2019. Um, a lot of those investors are viable investors, right? ESG intends to support kind of long-term investment outcomes and not necessarily short-term sort of market exposures. Um, so with that, there's been a number of studies really um, that these types of investors, right, buy and hold investors, um, I think like most notably of like wealth managers, are guiding clients through strong behavioral coaching. Um, and that's probably most exemplified during a time of crisis like this. Um, so I think what you see is a lot of wealth managers rebalancing back into equities. Um, and with that, I think that was a chance um, 
both uh, from a tax loss harvest, harvesting perspective or an opportunity to um, you know, move into something a little bit more systematic um, and, and potentially more resilient. And I think that's where ESGs kind of become an opportunity for investors. There are other rating providers that provide ESG ratings, such as S&P and FTSE. What makes MSCI different? Yeah, no, we get this question all the time. So I think there's two things. It's material relevance. So as I mentioned before with the key issues, MSCI is going to, we're going to focus on what is materially relevant uh, to firms within an industry, right? Um, you know, we don't necessarily want to rate banks and other financial services companies on how well they're managing water stress, right? It, it comes back to what is most financially relevant to investors. Um, so that's accounted for within our ratings, within those key issues, um, and within each industry. And then the other part would be where we're sourcing our data is substantially, or is rather different than um, some of the other providers out there. If you think about the types of data that we get from companies, it really comes from three sources. It's going to be mandatory company disclosures, voluntary company disclosures, and then finally, where we get the majority of our data at this point, it comes from alternative data sources. Um, it's important in our eyes, not just rely on what companies are saying, but you know, trying to take into account some of the actions behind just a lot of their, um, a lot of what they're, they're going to be disclosing. And we think it helps investors avoid bias from what the companies are going to be providing to us. So we want to account for that in our rating. Great. Anything else you want to share before I let you go? Yeah. So I want to thank you for inviting me on today. This was wonderful. Um, I think the uh, the thing I'd like to offer is at our website, msi.com, or alternatively, you can go to it's esg101.com. We have a, a great website just to learn more about ESG investing, learning a little bit about more about MSCI and just uh, a, a little bit about the research that we, we put out there. Um, and, and I would love to make that available to you and your listeners here. And yeah, thank you for having me. Again, this is Joe Pendergast from MSCI, and I will have the links that he mentioned on the Investing Forward podcast website. Next up, a conversation with my friend Jason Owens from Bright Road Wealth Management in Anchorage, Alaska. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jason Owens uh, from Bright Road Wealth Management. We have uh, offices in Anchorage and Tacoma, Washington. Um, work with clients actually all over the country from DC to LA to the far north into the Arctic Circle. Um, in my free time, I like to go out and play in the rivers and the mountains with my family and things like that. I still have a side job from my old days of outdoor uh, venture guiding, which I did for years and years. Um, and so I teach wilderness first aid classes for an organization called Knowles, which is the National Outdoor Leadership School. So I've actually flown all over the world to teach these two or three day wilderness first aid courses, which is super fun. Jason and I are in a mastermind group, which is essentially a study group with a cooler name, and we focus on impact investing. So you listened to the interview with Joe. Was there anything that stuck out to you? I was really surprised that their research, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was essentially, oh, we don't ask the company about themselves. And I was like, that's genius. Of course you wouldn't ask the company about themselves because they're just going to give you the shiny resume you know, and show you, show you what you want to see. So I really was impressed that they're, it's like, that's not even part of their process to me. I also didn't realize that they were 
so, I guess, proactive in the ESG space. Are you integrating ESG factors into your investment process right now? We are. You know, we're primarily a DFA shop, so we're using mostly DFA funds. And it's been really exciting because DFA is coming out with more sustainable funds uh, and, and social ESG funds. For those who don't know, DFA stands for Dimensional Fund Advisors. DFA is a private investment firm headquartered in Austin, Texas, and individual investors can access DFA's funds through financial professionals, retirement plans, or certain 529 plans. Jason, are investors coming to you asking for ESG integration or impact investing? So 50% of my clients are pleasantly surprised when they come, when they hear that we can tilt the portfolio towards sustainability and exclude the kind of companies that they want to exclude. Um, They're excited about that. Maybe 25% of uh, my clients don't care either way um, and are not really that interested in hearing about it. And then the other 25 are scared that there's going to be some kind of underperformance to do what they want to do, you know, to, to exclude the companies they want to exclude. They're afraid that they're leaving retirement funds on the table and they're not going to be able to reach their goals. And so in that case, it's really just an education process, just as everything in our world is about, it's particularly about investments because people have been uh, miseducated so grossly. I would say that I am seeing a similar breakdown. Clients don't ask about it because they don't know about it or they have an old assumption that there will be a performance penalty. There was definitely an assumption in the past that socially responsible investing funds, which is another name, so we'll talk a lot about that on the podcast, is all these different names you might hear, um, but socially responsible investing funds would underperform the market. That has proven not to be the case, and thousands of research papers have come to the same conclusion. Portfolios that integrate ESG factors do not suffer when it comes to performance. Things that I have found that really resonated with clients personally are the Exxon Valdez spill that Joe mentioned. For those who don't remember, Exxon Valdez had an oil spill in 1989 and there was virtually no effect on the stock price. Compare that to the BP oil spill that happened in 2010 and BP's share price dropped 30%. Another example along those lines is that more CEOs were forced out of eth- for ethical lapses in 2018 than they were for poor financial performance. That just would not have happened 10 years ago, even though there was always unethical behavior, because the standards have just changed. There's more demand for transparency and accountability, and there are so many examples of factors like high employee turnover, poor data security, lack of an independent board of directors, the list goes on, that affect stock performance, but they were once considered to be unmeasurable or just not tracked consistently. So ESG integration is filling that gap. I just helping investors measure and systemize things that traditional financial analysis doesn't always capture. Yeah, well, I will say that we are, I'm very excited about the MSCI ETFs because we have a lot of hourly clients that we want to give them a a sustainable portfolio and we can't because there's not enough out there in the uh, the ETF space and they can't get DFA on their own. So it's, we want those, we want those sustainable ETFs. We don't feel right now that we can build a great portfolio exclusively with uh, with sustainable ETFs. So we're excited to see what they bring to the table for sure. 
Actually, that is a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know for the ESG integrated portfolios for my clients, there are two to three traditional funds in the portfolio because I could not find a suitable ESG replacement for REITs, for example. So that's real estate investment trusts. There are some interesting REITs with an impact focus, but not with the same risk return profile for what I needed, or they have a very high minimum, such as $100,000, or they require the investor to be something called an accredited investor. So these are things that we will touch on in more detail on the podcast, but you make a great point. And with that, we are at our time. So Jason, is there anything else that you want to share before I let you go? Yeah, I think um, obviously our website, brightroadwealth.com is a great place to look. It's kind of boring and says a lot of things that websites say. So if you want to see something more interesting, I post a lot more interesting things on my LinkedIn page. Jason Owens, J-A-Y-S-O-N-O-W-E-N-S, CFP of a Facebook page, professional page where I post a lot, maybe a little more risky, interesting things than I post on my LinkedIn page. Um, But yeah, and you can, you can register for our webinar on our website. There's an events button and you can just register for that. The the webinar coming up on May 26th is called um, Life After Retirement. And so it's the third in our series of sort of retirement prep. And we previously talked about everyone focuses on the the day. It's like getting married, right? It's like the day. But really what you need to know about getting married is how to handle everything after that day. (laughs) It's like the wedding is not, you didn't really need to be prepped for that. That was like a party, right? (laughs) So so that's what this, this session is going to be about is like, what does it look like to go from be, being a, a frugal saver your whole life to becoming a spender? And how is that, you know, how do you cope with that? Because that's a thing people don't think about. They just think, what will I do with my free time? And then they have in their mind a hobby that lasts like three months, you know, and then and they have this whole other life that they haven't figured out. They haven't laid out a plan for. So that's what we're going to be talking about is, you know, what are the things that you didn't think about? come into this retirement thing. And, and the, the, the finish line is really just the beginning. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing your perspective and hopefully you will be on again soon. You can find Jason's information and the other links mentioned today at investingforwardpodcast.com. My name is Linda Rogers. You are listening to Investing Forward. If you liked what you heard, leave us a rating, subscribe, and stay tuned for next time. Linda Rogers is the owner of Planning Within Reach, a registered investment advisor. Planning Within Reach produces the podcast and makes it available on its website and through other distribution channels. Linda Rogers and any guests on the podcast are providing their own views and opinions and are not necessarily the views and opinions of Planning Within Reach. Nothing on the podcast should be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advisory services are only provided to investors who become Planning Within Reach clients pursuant to a written investment management agreement. 
Clients of Planning Within Reach may hold positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk and may lose money. The Investing Forward podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for any investment decisions. Consult with a financial advisor, accountant, attorney, or conduct your own due diligence.